If I have to be in a meeting where someone is going to give me an update, that is the most inefficient use of my time. Like write it out, send me, you know, write it in a document or pre-record it like, right. so that I can watch it on my asynchronously on my own and at two X the speed. Like, right. you know, I like I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and books and everything else. And, and the ability to listen to something like the brain can process information faster than most people talks. Right. Most people speak. And so like listen to something at one and a half or two X speed, like once you kind of get used to that cadence. And so when you sit on an hour and a half long call where everyone just like is reading their slides or, you know, telling you, telling you things, what really matters when you get people together, it's the alchemy that, that when you can, when you can take a group of people and you can come up with ideas and you can respond in real time, like that's the work that's really valuable in person. Like, Welcome to Millennial Manhood. Appreciate you coming on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, for folks who don't know who you are, David, what's your um, what's your 10,000 foot view? Why are you, uh, how'd you end up on a podcast? What's your background? What's your professional, personal, et cetera? Give, give, the, people, uh, give the people a little bit of a story. Yeah. Um, I, I think about myself in kind of three buckets um, as, as an advisor and kind of strategist, um, you know, a... Um, a kind of consultant uh, where I where I come in and work a, a, alongside uh, my clients, and then also I, I do a fair amount of investment work, um, not for clients, but just on a on a personal basis. Um, and so I kind of think about like you know pivoting between you know doing deep strategy, strategic thinking. You know how does that apply to, to clients, and then can I lever that same skill set in, in looking at investment opportunities that might come along? Um, so it's all, you know, slightly different pieces, but the, the flywheel seems to be kind of self-reinforcing. So, right. And so before we dive a little deeper into, you know, what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, expanding on that, you know, give us a little bit on the background, you know, how did you end up in Nashville? How did you, you know, what were you doing beforehand? Because one of the things that really intrigued me about your story is how you ended up being essentially an entrepreneur and, yeah. uh, the, the, for lack, for lack of a better term, the, the like one page business plan is like, okay, here you go. So yeah. I, I, I go ahead, you know, share a little bit on that. Yeah. So in some ways, like I've kind of always been entrepreneurial. Um, I, I started a, a business in high school, uh, writing software and doing web pages for small businesses in my hometown. Um, and so I've, I was one of those, you know, I think there are some kids who are like, uh, they're like, oh, I, you know, they, you find out they're a professional investor and they're like, you know, I was trading stocks at age five. That was not my story. Um, but I've been interested in business since I was, you know, since I was four or five and like had an old briefcase of my dad's that I, you know, put uh, brochures and literature. And like, if we went to a car show or a boat show, like I, I just loved, you know, how businesses kind of thought about themselves. And so I've always had an entrepreneurial bent um, and really, what was interesting is I went to college thinking I was like, this is, so I went to college, uh, graduated from high school in 01. So pretty near, like it was heady days for the internet. Um, but things had started, you know, the, the bubble had started to burst at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went to college and I thought like, Oh great. Like I'm going to, I'll probably like pick up, I'll finish my degree and I'll move out to California and start a tech company. Um, and during the course of college, I got really interested in investing. Um, and I've always had kind of a mixture of like, you know, harder kind of left brain, like very analytical side, but then also a philosophical, like deep thinking, like how does the world work kind of side. Right. And what I, when I found was with investments specifically, like I was reading some books about Warren Buffett and others, like I, I, I like the fact that like investing feels like the, feels like the, the, like the living laboratory where strategy plays out. So you can have all these like views of like how a business is going to do. Um, but then like the, 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 the playing field for that is, is actually in the market. Like, and, and so that was really, really interesting. So I spent um, really starting about my late, my junior year of college until 2015. So call it like close to, to 10 to 12 years, like deep, deep in the, the world of like, how do you pick stocks? How do you understand that? So worked for, an, I was a research analyst at an investment bank, um, and, and worked with really large, you know, hedge fund clients and, and, and conducting research on companies. I um, started a hedge fund with a, with a friend of mine in, in 2012, um, kind of a Buffett style partnership. Um, and that was a really great way to learn. And I think, you know, over the course of, of then actually managing money, realized that like there are, there are things about that business model that are 
really attractive. Um, there's a lot about it. Just, you know, honestly, having like a daily scoreboard is just can be really, really t- taxing. Right. Um, and so when when we wound down our fund and I started looking around, um, you know, I, I, that, I, up to that point, I'd actually, you know, helped start a research firm. We started our hedge fund. So that's kind of businesses two and three landed at a, at a, at a really great firm here in town, spent about three years there helping them think about how they grow and scale. And after about three years, kind of felt like my work was, had kind of wrapped up um, and, you know, great guys and, and really liked where the firm was positioned, but it wasn't going to be my forever career home. And so it's like, all right, it's time to kind of get back out there again. Um, and, and so, yeah, as you, as you kind of mentioned, like I, I had a couple of ideas for, for businesses um, and I put down like a, I put down two separate kind of like one page business plans that I sent to two separate groups of people. And the idea was like, let's see who, where I get a client first. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, wh- where the, where the path opened up was like, is kind of what I'm doing now, which is great. It's kind of, it's the one that I wanted to work. Um, but it, it's really fortunate that, that, that actually ended up being the one that has kind of gotten traction and legs to it. So. Yeah. I love the fact that, you know, we're, uh, we're sitting there grabbing lunch and you're telling me about this and you're like, yeah, I just put these business plans together and I sent them to people and, and here we are. Then they started paying me for my services. And yeah. I think, especially when it comes to starting a business or being an entrepreneur or anything along those lines, because so much of it is uh, sexy in the way it's described in the cultural ethos. Like if you own your own plumbing business, you're an entrepreneur. You know what I mean? Like, you Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Have to start Facebook to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I think a lot of that, um, is kind of lost in the conversation. So people have these really, really, you know, lofty ideas and there's no real, um, like, again, there's only one Zuckerberg, but there's a whole lot of folks who, who have their own family office that they run that have, you know, their own plumbing company, their own soft, uh, their own website design company. I mean, you know, what do you think all these marketing firms out there are? They're making <laughs> logos and websites and things like that. You know, the things you were doing on a, yeah. uh, what, what what were the what were the websites called back in the nineties? Um, the like the platform everybody used to make one. Oh, so I was an old school kind of nerd. So we, we hard coded everything. So oh, wow, I was writing the HTML and the JavaScript, and then using PHP and and Cold Fusion and a couple other back end tools for database stuff. So yeah, old school, you know, geekdom. Um, now it's a lot easier than than it was back in ninety seven, ninety eight. So, but I. I think you're a hundred percent spot on. Like, and I, I had always been like, I didn't come, I come from like multiple generations of phys- physicians, which is a very linear career path. It's like, you do well in school, you get a job, like that's pretty set. Um, I'm not sure my parents still fully like understand what I do um, or like, or they think that it's like, it's so uncertain. And I think, so I'd always had this question of like, how do big businesses get start started? And the reality is, is like most of the time people you know, you don't start with like the most capital intensive business, right? Like, so T, T Boone Pickens, I think is interesting. So, you know, super famous, like built Mesa Petroleum, then was a really successful like oil trader, had like a number of different businesses in around, uh, you know, petrochem space like that. You don't get a business that requires more money to, to do than drilling oil. And like his first business was, was, was basically outsourced engineering services where he had a skill set. He was tired of working for a company and he found a couple of people to pay him to help him do, I think, to review like geological charts. Mm. So almost required no capital, but then you build relationships, you build industry context, you build, you know, you build some personal capital and then the next opportunity and the next opportunity. And I, I worry that I think people assume that like you have to come up with an idea that has to go through the traditional venture channels that requires a massive amount of capital and then a market size that's, you know, billions or hundreds of billions like a Facebook or, or Tesla or whatever else. And it's, that's just not the, I mean, that, those are like the, the rare businesses that get started. Most are very, very small origins doing one thing really well and serving clients and taking care of, you know, whatever the customer is and then keeping like a very open mind to opportunity as it comes um, rather than, you know, like dreaming up, envisioning a whole future world before you even get started. It just, I just don't think it works like that. Expand, expand on this, the comment you made about your parents feeling that uh, what you do is so uncertain yet. um, I find that interesting because um, I would consider being a physician, one of the most uncertain professions possible in 2022 with 
all the different changes, all the different things, the cost of healthcare, the, you know, just the fact that we have, it's literally a system built on house. It's it's a house of cards. It can't, it cannot sustain itself long-term. But there is this idea of like, oh, that's a good, stable, safe job. And it's like, not if you don't have patients that can't, that can pay. Yeah. And I think COVID was such a, such an interesting black swan for that industry of like, oh, you know, the accepted norms or like the idea that like, you're always going to have customers and you're always going to deliver value in this way that gets, that's, that gets changed. I think there was a window of time in medicine and let's say like from, you know, the end of world war two until the early to mid two thousands, it was a pretty, like pretty consistent, you know, if you look at it as a, like, percentage of GDP, like mm-hmm. massive industry growth, really consistent. And, and and medicine today, like the technology is different, but the delivery mechanism is still pretty similar. Yeah. And I think COVID, like many things, just fast forwarded like a decade of change where suddenly it's like, you know, like the idea that you need to go somewhere to do diagnostics. Like, well, I, if I can swab and do a, a COVID test in my house, like why do I need to like leave the house to go get a flu test or a strep test? Or so I think I think a lot of that stuff maybe changes, um, but there was a window of time when I was, you know, when when I was growing up, where it it looked like a pretty consistent, steady field. Um, and I think the reality is like there's nothing that's a hundred percent certain. Um, I think what is valuable is is finding, figuring out what you're good at, and then getting really good at it. Right. You know, if right. you're in medicine, is a nice pathway to developing a very clear set of skills. I think in the in the business world, you just have to be a lot more intentional to get to to build some really deep skills um, that are then translatable. Um, I think if you if you've only been like a generalist or you haven't pushed yourself to really develop, that's probably the the bigger risk. Well, and I think it, it's um, one of the comments you made that I found really interesting was you have to be open to opportunities, which. There, I mean, it's a two-edged sword. One is being open to opportunities. The other side is being a sucker. <laughs> you know, that's the that's the other side of it because there is there is a lot of scams out there in the world as well. But I do feel like a lot of people, just generally speaking, that I interact with, do tend to have their blinders on when it comes to opportunities. Was there like an aha moment for you where you were like, "Oh, there's like there's there's lots of ways of making money." So when I was in college, there was a there was a man um, who actually taught my Sunday school class, who was a really successful entrepreneur um, in my hometown in Virginia. And so I started spending some time with him and just getting like lunch and coffee on a regular basis. And that for me was was probably it was really helpful to see like he had a bunch of different business interests. I think ultimately where he ended up was he was probably one of the largest apartment owners in my hometown and had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of units across the kind of region. Um, but it was helpful to see how he thought about opportunity, you know, how that had evolved and then kind of the portfolio that he had, that he had put together. That was kind of, that was an interesting moment. Um, combined with, I, I had a very, a professor in college that I was fortunate to take a handful of classes with who became a, a kind of a friend and mentor. And I think one of the things that he, um, that he really emphasized was that people think about entrepreneurs as people who take risk. They're like, oh, it's really risky to start a business or, or the like. He's like, when you actually look at what entrepreneurs do, he's like, what they're really good at is, is minimizing risk. Right. And, and I think, and what he meant by that is, is like, there's a, you know, they, cal- they understand the market and then they calibrate the size of the bet to the opportunity that's there. Right. And so I think people assume that like starting a business means that like, oh, I've got to quit my job, got to quit my job you know, put, drain my 401k, put it all to work. And maybe at some point that makes sense. But in reality, it's probably more like taking some measured bets to see if like you have an idea and you can, can you find a customer? Right. Okay. We found the first customer. Can I improve the idea and find the second customer? And I think that's where you can then be a lot more measured in your, in your risk taking. But, but at the end of the day, like, a portion of that is also you have to have a lifestyle that allows you to to have some flexibility. And I think that's probably the the bigger piece is, is like most people don't want to live, they don't want to build enough cushion in their lifestyle so that they have some extra cash flow. And this is not, I, I know, and that that's not talking about folks who are like, you know, working minimum wage jobs or right, like really right. struggling to put kind of food on the table. 
but kind of once you're above the subsistence line, like there's cushion, there's extra in the budget. Right. It's just a question of like, are you going to be intentional with that or not? Um, and it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take a hundred grand, like, but, but can you, you know, can you scrape together one, five, 10 grand that gives you the chance to, to try something out on your nights and your weekends? You know, I, I think that like, you know, it, that just requires some discipline, some, some focus and, and then that those are also really pivotal uh, skill sets to develop for, for being an entrepreneur. Right. Yeah. It's interesting uh, what you said, the, the example you gave of the gentleman that taught your Sunday school class and was an apartment building owner. And I have a story almost identical to that. And um, that's something I, I encourage people all the time because so the, the individual that that's my version of that, I, I asked him at one point, I was like, you know, how many people come up to you and do this? What you, the relationship you and I have built, because at the time I'm probably like 24, 25 mm-hmm. when I meet him and he's in his maybe late fifties, early sixties. <clears throat> and, but it's no secret that he's successful. Everybody, everybody knows. Yeah. And, um, I asked him, I was like, how often does this happen? He was like, never. May, I mean, maybe one, you, you know, but never. And I was just thinking there sitting, even at 25, I was like, that's insane. You have this just bucket of wisdom inside somebody's brain that for lack of a better term, eventually will die, <laughs> you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Once, it, it will go away. Yeah. And yeah. once that person dies, that wisdom goes away unless they wrote it down or recorded it or whatever, but nobody records their entire, you know, you can't download your brain. Why would you, why would you not reach out to these people and learn from them and fast forward your trajectory? Cause you can spend the next 30 years learning everything they've learned, or you can learn all the stuff that they've learned and then spend the next 30 years improving on what they've learned. And yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I don't, I don't know if it's like an innate thing that I have or that you have to where it like just makes sense to do, or if it was just like a positive feedback loop that created it. But if I could like just beat that into people, that, that would be it. I think you're spot on. And, and the other thing that I found is, so I read a lot, um, and, and have, have typically read kind of 40 ish books a year. And I've done that for 15, 15 plus years, almost 20 years. And, and the same thing with, with, with a book, like a good book is it's some, most of the time it's someone offering like a lifetime's worth of wisdom for $20 and, right. and in 275 pages. And it's like, this is like the greatest deal of, of available to you. And, you know, and you can't read bad books, right? Like pick the books that are really impactful and then, and dig into them. And I, and I find that like, when you dig into them and then like see the footnotes and like read, read the footnotes or the references and who who's quoted in the book and then go read those books. And, and it's the same kind of thing where it's like, if you feel like you can't find mentors in person, then go get mentored in page and go buy, I mean, I buy used books on Amazon and they're a dollar 25. And so, you know, it's six bucks by the time it's shipped to your house and the, the wisdom that's available, but I, I agree. I think, you know, there's, there's so much that's available. And I think if you approach people from a position of humility and you ask lots of questions and you're hungry to learn, people are hungry to be known. And I think the weirder or the more esoteric, the way that they've made their wealth, if you express an interest in it, the more excited they are to share. Like I have been fortunate to, to get to know a number of different other CEOs and business owners and, and and business owning families over the years. And like the quirkier the business, the less likely there is that somebody like knows how to talk to them about it. And when you express an interest and ask thoughtful questions, like they just open up and they sh- they want to tell their stories and they want to share what they've learned. And and then it's just, you know, I I, I know Warren Buffett talks about this, but like the compound the compounded value of knowledge. Like you, you do that over a long enough period of time, you gather enough data points and you keep, you know, keep adding to it. Like that just, you know, that continues to grow and grow and grow. And suddenly five years later, you're like, oh, I've actually learned something. And 10 years later, you're like, wow, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've learned a lot. And, oh, I've realized I, there's a lot more about the world that I don't know. And, and I think that's, you know, in some ways where, where it gets more exciting is because you, you get these mental models and tool sets. And then suddenly you realize like the world is vastly more complicated than I thought it was when it was, when I was 22, but that's also so exciting because like life is long and that means there's a lot of really interesting stuff to dig into. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's where it gets, you know, can be exciting and can, you can build a career that, or a business that, that keeps you engaged for a lifetime. 
do you think that you have the entrepreneurial bug because um, you get bored easily? That's a really good question. I, I think I get, I really like complicated problems. And I think when the problem is no longer complicated, complicated or interesting, <laughs> then I move on. Yeah. Oh, you now, just spoke to my soul. Yeah. And I think, and I think what I like about, what I like about entrepreneurship and, and I think entrepreneurship doesn't have to be starting a business. Like I, I, I was, I kind of keep a list of like things that I've been involved with over the years. And like, it could be starting nonprofits. It could be like, you're involved in a club and you start a new, you know, event or program. I think it's just this idea of like, can you envision something that doesn't exist in the world that you think should? And then can you, can you work to do that and bring people along, find some friends to do it? Um, once it's, you know, once it's kind of 80% of the way there, you know, 90% of the way there, the problem is kind of on a path where it's straightened out. Then I'd, I'd like to go find the new problem. Um, I, I, yeah, that, that's kind of been my, 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 my way of looking at the world. Um, I think there are people who are really good at, um, stewarding something and growing it. Um, but I think at some point, like when something's mature and it's just more like, how do we do more of the same? Probably less interesting. It's interesting. My buddy Zach told me once he was like, yeah, it's a, you're a builder. You like to build things. You know, you don't like to manage things after the fact you want to build them because the, the initial stages of the building process is, is the exciting fun part because again, it's the problem solving. And here's the thing. People are willing to pay a lot of money for problems to be solved. Absolutely. So there's a really, one of my favorite authors is this guy named Clayton Christensen and Clayton was a professor at Harvard business school and um, wrote a number of different books. The, the, the primary piece of his research was on this concept of disruptive innovation. So if you've ever heard about a business being disrupted, like mm -hmm. they're referencing Clayton's work. And, he's, and his, the, the book there is The Innovator's Dilemma, um, which was kind of the early piece of that. Fantastic read. It's super applicable. You, you know, you learn something out of that. One of the last books that he wrote before he passed, he had cancer and died at age 67 or 68 a couple of years ago, was on this idea of like jobs to be done. And that ultimately, like, you know, when people buy a product or they buy a service, like they have some work to be done, you know, they've got some some work that needs to be done. And then they're hire, you know, they're hiring this tool. So like if I'm hungry, like and I go to Wendy's, like I'm I'm getting that quarter pounder with cheese to like the job to be done is to like satiate my hunger. Right. Same thing with like when I need someone to like cut my grass or whatever. And so if you if you can find somebody who's got a real job to be done and you can present a viable solution, you can get paid for it. And if it's an exceptionally painful problem and it's exceptionally time consuming or cumbersome, you can pay it a lot. You can probably get paid a lot for it. Right. It's interesting. I uh, I think I I talked to you about this story. Um, there's a guy named Nick Huber. And uh, Nick Huber runs a, a private equity group out of Atlanta. And so let, let's just look at this, you know, from a macro level. So if I say, hey, somebody runs a private equity shop, there's an immediate um, perception that comes into your mind, like of how this person got started, what it means, like stuffy suits, yada, yada, yada. So <clears throat> Nick and his, so the, the way Nick got started in this, and I find this story fascinating. So Nick's from Athens, Georgia, but decided to go to Cornell uh, instead of UGA. So, you know, the whole Ivy League thing, blah, 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 blah. Senior year, all his friends are going to Wall Street, which is the most stereotypical thing imaginable. Sure. Um, but him and his best friend are like, and he was at Cornell because he, he ran track. Um, him and his best friend were like, you know what? I don't actually think I'm smart enough to go to Wall Street was actually there because they were like, we're here because of track and like. I mean, we're fine, but we're not top of the class. Um, yeah, yeah. But there's a whole bunch of people at Cornell who are international students who are out of state, et cetera. They have all their crap in their apartment, dorm, whatever in May, and they're leaving for the summer. And then they come back in August. So they started a company, a moving company where they would come mm -hmm. and they would just pick up all your stuff, store it away for the summer, and then bring it back in August. And they killed it. They grew it to like, from 2012, when he graduated until like 2017, I think they grew it to like 18 or 19 campuses. So it was like this massive yeah. operation they grew. Okay, next step. So they've got this massive operation. They're like, they've got some money saved up. So they each put half a million dollars into a deal to develop and build a storage facility. 
So they go mm-hmm. through that process. It's a nightmare. It works out because the, they caught the market at the right time. They end with it. And then they're like, this was really hard. And uh, I didn't really enjoy this part. You know what we could do, though? Why don't we just go start buying storage facilities? Yeah. So, yeah. so they start going into these tertiary markets, which are like, uh, uh, think like, um, uh, like Telahoma, Tennessee or whoever would be like, yeah, uh, okay. yeah, like not Nashville, not Chattanooga, but like the middle markets. And they go and find these storage facilities that are ran by mom and pop, you know, operators who still have paper ledgers, who are still taking checks, who like completely inefficient. They buy them, they make them, you know, three X more efficient, refinance, pull their money out over and over, rinse, repeat. And they've got, you know, $150 million portfolio in a couple of years. Um, think about the trajectory of that individual. Hey, let's start moving crap for international students yeah, yeah. to run in this private equity group. And his whole thing was, I always tried to find the place where I could just dominate the competition. I don't want to start an app because then I have to, you know, compete with Stanford engineering grads, but I can compete with the 70 year old owner operator of a storage facility in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. Yeah. 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 I, it's an awesome story. And what I love about it too, is just like, um, you can't chart that on paper. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's this mentality, you know, if you just like culturally, right, we're in this moment in this period of time where like the meritocracy is such a, a such an underlying ethos in our society of right. like, if you work hard, you get the next opportunity. So it's like, you work hard, you go to the Ivy League, you go to the Ivy League, you go to Wall Street, you go to Wall Street, you work at a private equity. And it's this like this idea that success is very linear. And maybe that's true for a small number of people. But but the reality is, is I think it's it's 75% of of those who are kind of wealthy are, are new to the state of affairs. So like wealth gets created every generation. Like mm-hmm. it, it's the idea that like the folks who are wealthy right now are only wealthy because they inherited it. That is true for a very small fortune, a small fraction. Like there's lots of new opportunity that gets created. And arguably, like if you've been on a linear, a linear trajectory, you don't have the nimbleness to see opportunity that presents itself Ooh. because you've never had to take risk before. Like right. it, there's always been like the next you're, step. You're, yeah. And you're very coin. You, you frankly may be very coin operated. Like the next, you know, the next carrot and on the, on the path is like put in front of you and you know, it's your first wall street job at 200 K and then it's the private equity job at 500 K. And then it's the partner level job that's at 2 million a year. And, it, and uh, you know, again, odds are like, it's not that you're going to be hungry, but it's just, it's highly competitive because it's kind of a clear path. Right. And then, and then for some folks, like that is a really wonderful and, and, and enjoyable skill set and, 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 and career for them to have. So not to, to, to speak against that, but there's a lot of folks that I think would probably be a lot happier doing something else, mm. but they're just, you know, they don't have, they've not given themselves the imaginative flexibility to then pursue something that looks atypical. Um, right. And so, yeah, so then they end up living, what is it? Most men live lives of quiet desperation as the quote goes. Like I've had a guy uh, on the podcast uh, last year, right around this time last year, he said, most people, most men in particular, because it was all about, you know, uh, the man, the man's experience in life. He was like, most men die in their thirties. We just wait until their eighties to bury them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, but again, for some people, you know, a nine to five and corporate America is what they want and they're happy as a clam. And that makes me want to jump off a cliff. You know, it's just not, it's, I do think there's probably something genetic to that. There's probably some nurture to that. There's probably all kinds of different things, but so it's not about, Hey, you know, go be an entrepreneur. That's not what I'm telling you. I don't think that's what you're saying, but I am saying, Hey, if you're going to be in corporate America, 95, you have to be nimble enough to see the opportunities that others aren't seeing in corporate America, nine to five. Yeah. I think that's spot on. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, if you are, if you become aware of what it is you're actually good at, develop that skill set so that you're world-class at it and then figure out where you're going to do that. Like, and that may be inside of a corporation. It may be not, it may be independently, but if you're, regardless of where you are, it's, you have to be a bit paranoid about the change that's coming or the opportunities that are around you because like that disrupts your skill set and, or creates opportunity. So you can't, you kind of, you have to, 
yeah, you, you both have to get good at something, but then you also have to kind of keep your antenna above, you know, keep the periscope up above the, the surf to see what's coming. What's, what's the opportunity? How does that move and evolve? And that, I mean, that's, you know, in a world of technology, right? Like the, the half-life of a business is a lot shorter than it was. Right. You know, I, there's a, there's a great chart that looks at constituents of the fortune 500 and in the, the 1955 class of constituents like stayed in the fortune 500 for 30 years and by like the 1985 and 1995 classes, it's down to like 15 years. Mm. And so just even, so these are like the largest, most successful businesses are not around in 15 years. Right. So if it, as, as, as men, as those who are working, like we also ought to be aware that like, you know, what got us to this moment I may mean, not be what gets us to the next moment because the world, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't know that you, you know, that you needed app developers, or we didn't know that like you know, SEO optimization management was like, was an actual career or, you know, pick, pick whatever technologically influenced field. Like, but if you were, you know, in charge of managing the classified section at the local newspaper, like you were, you were SOL if you hadn't figured out that like Craigslist was coming for your lunch. Right. Right. Let me, so let me ask you this. So you work with, you know, ultra wealthy families. Uh, families, a lot of times who've had money through generations. Um, what have you learned that just blew you away working with these folks? Yeah, I think, yeah. So, so, but my, my kind of day job, um, is, is I, I do strategic consulting work for, um, large multi-generational families, um, that have most of the times either had businesses for, 75, 80, 100 years, or they're now, they've sold that business and they now have like an investment pool. I, honestly, I think the, the the thing that immediately comes to mind is um, I think there is an assumption that wealthy people live luxurious lifestyles and that, you know, that they're, they have these kind of glamorous, you know, they're jet setting around and, and, you know, like the Formula One's in Monaco, you know, this weekend and like, you know, that they're over in Monaco and they're on their yacht and jet and everything else. And that that is true for a, a subsegment. Generally, what I find is, is that a lot of the families that have built very large fortunes, um, they did so over a very long time and they lived like normal, professional kind of, you know, well-educated upper middle class people. Yeah. Um, and so what that means is then when they come into wealth, it's a really disconcerting experience because it's, you know, Hey, I'm used to living with this lifestyle and suddenly I've got a balance sheet that's got a hundred, you know, that has a liquid hundred million dollars or a liquid billion or a liquid 5 billion. And so then there's this real interesting question of like, well, it wasn't really ever about the money anyway. Right. Most of the time it's, you know, it was about taking care of their, their customers. It was about taking care of their community. It was about growing something about taking care of future generations when you've got this, then this pool of potential energy of that's in the form of kind of dollars in the bank, it, there's almost a kind of a reimagination then of what's possible um, and what does that look like, and and for some like yeah there may be some incremental growth in consumption, but the reality is it's more how do we figure out what do we do next? That's a really, it's a really interesting question and why I do what I do is is working with families on that, but the surprise piece has been. I, I just, I, I had always assumed that like, um, yeah, people would, that there was a, yeah, there was a lot. Yeah. And maybe it's the millionaire next door, but people are a lot more like that than like, you know, the, um, than the flashy kind of like as seen on TV type wealth, um, you know, be it Kardashians, Donald Trump, whatever. That, yeah. That's actually probably more rare. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm going to, yeah. I don't like the example nothing against you using the example. I don't like the example of quote millionaire next door, just because I feel like when I read the millionaire next door, I was like, okay, these people might not be living like the Kardashians, but they're still living like a physician or an attorney. Like they're not driving a, if you got a $200 million liquid, you ain't driving a 1996 Ford F-150 more than likely. There are, there yep. are people who are okay. Let's find, but that's the, that's the exception to the rule, not the rule. Um, it, it's it's more so. I think what's interesting, really interesting about your comment is that it was at the end of the day it was about value creation and money followed the value that was created. Um, I, I I've been chewing on that concept a lot, especially just kind of with the conversations that are going on in society. You know, you have uh, folks with 
jackets and shirts to say eat the rich as as a slogan you know it's it's there's just this unhealthy dialogue in my opinion because i think all throughout the economic spectrum and all throughout the conversations that are being had there are legitimate points everywhere along the way but i i do think that um the extreme nature of a lot of these conversations, just like everything else in our culture, because we were unable to actually have a discussion um, mm-hmm. on on a macro scale, is it's become politicized. It's become a culture war thing. It's become all these. We're, we're at the very core. It's like, fun fact, if you're screwing over people over and over and over and over again, your business will not survive in 2022 for very long because you will get found out. Yes. Yep. It's this isn't yeah, just look at yeah look at Purdue Pharma yeah right this isn't eighteen twenty two okay <laughs> like, yeah. This is, yeah. This, yeah that's not how this works so so what are your some of your thoughts around like the the value creation the discussion in society et cetera just just generally speaking yeah so and where I where I kind of run to on that is is and this is not my turn of phrase it's from a from a friend and mentor of mine. But he makes the comment that no society has ever tolerated a perpetual leisure class. Mm. That if you look back over the course of human history, that like, you know, when when someone kind of reaches a point where they, and not even just one person, but if there's a whole group of people that can just kind of coast, like that tends to correspond with revolution and, and like th- those assets will get redistributed. Right, right. And so I think what's interesting is if you compare that narrative to... Um, many of the families that I'm fortunate to spend time with that in, in, in most cases, maybe the largest single employer in their, you know, in a Tullahoma or whatever, you know, the largest single employer in that, in a town, you know, they give massive amounts of philanthropic investment to, you know, local charities. Um, you know, in many cases, you see people who stay in, in working for businesses for a career, they take care of their employees. Like I, I know, a handful of businesses that didn't lay off a single person during the the global financial crisis. Like, you know, it was a, it was a, there is a sense of greater responsibility and stewardship. And so I think that's the, I think that's the, the opportunity for those who have means is, is to, but by all, this is not meant to say like, you know, don't enjoy the fruits of labor, but it's also then like scale it proportionately and recognize that like, to, to those who have been given a lot, like a lot is required. And Andrew Carnegie wrote a, a, a wonderful essay in the 20s, I believe, called The Gospel of Wealth. And he basically makes the case that like, you know, those who have been blessed and those who are kind of the rich, like have a mandate to then to get, to give back and to, to find ways to support the less fortunate. And so like Carnegie, for example, like single-handedly built a huge portion of the public library system in the United States. Mm. And I think, you know, the view there is, is that like, one of the best things someone can do to better their life is to have the opportunity to get educated. And, you know, what, what is more compelling than a resource that's publicly available and free with the, with the sum total of the world's knowledge available? Like, and, you know, that's the internet before there was the internet was the public right. library system. And so I think that's where it really becomes more on how do, how, how do those who have, who have accumulated assets figure out how to, continue to, to use those to, to solve real problems. And so some of that may be philanthropically. And then some of that is, is like building enduring great businesses. Um, you know, like, like this, the, the self-storage concept, like, you know, if you are more efficient in running those operations, like odds are like your prices are probably going to be, you have the ability to be better on your pricing because you can, you've got a cheaper cost structure. You know, those, those assets that become available, allow you to go build, you know, build it up, you know, to meet demand in other markets where there is where people are being well served, like that's kind of the magic of capitalism. Um, if you're just kind of the you know taking a tax off of off of your customers and and getting kind of you know fat and happy on that, like you know that's called you know we know that like that's monopoly, like and we know what Comcast customer service is like or Charter or AT and T or whatever, like you know. But yeah. for those who continue to invest and grow, like the sky's the limit. Um, well, and the ironic part is the reason that we uh, know why Charter or Comcast or whoever is because that's a, that's because of government government mandates. That's <laughs> that, right. Yeah, that's because of the the utility of cable. And it's it's interesting because people constantly rail against co- capitalism, but they don't hate capitalism; they hate cronyism. They yes. hate that's yeah. when capitalism and government get combined. That's what you hate. You don't hate capitalism. 
because capitalism allowed for you to have a job. You hate cronyism because that created an unfair systematic structure in our society that doesn't allow for, you know, one or the other thing to happen. So yeah. that that's yep. where a lot of the problems, in my opinion, come into play because people miss one misuse terms and two again everything turns into a cultural war issue where there's no real discussion. Yeah, that's well said. Um, well said. <clears throat> what? So when you look at your, I'm assuming you're in your early 40s, just from the time frame you gave me, or late 30s, early 40s. Uh, yeah, late 30s. You know, when you look at the next 20, 30 years of your life, I mean, what are you kind of envisioning? Hmm. So yeah, it's a regular conversation uh, between my my wife and I, and then like my executive coach and I, and and others. Um, I I think you know if anything, I feel like okay. Um, I I personally probably don't plan on retiring, um, or I, I don't sit still well on the weekends. Right. The idea that like I'm gonna you know so maybe the volume gets turned down on work at some point, but like I kind of view it if I've got a let's say you know, I graduated at 22 and let's say I've got a chance to have kind of a, you know, a, a 40 to 50 year career. Like I kind of view like where I'm at is, is like, I just finished the first quarter. Um, you know, and I've, you know, I've just kind of started into, to that kind of second quarter piece of it. So in my mind, it, you know, I, I feel really blessed that like I've, I've been able to work with and be mentored by really, really wonderful people who's been, who have been helpful in kind of building a skill set. Um, and so I'm trying to, I think even kind of looping back to where we started earlier in our conversation, like, I feel like right now is both, um, doing the work that I can do with, with clients and adding value, but then also keeping really open, open-minded to, you know, things that I'm hearing opportunities that might be surfacing. Um, I think when I was younger, it was probably easier to point to something and say like, oh, like I'm going to be doing this when I'm 50 or when I'm 60. I think now it's like, you know what? I have no idea. I, you know, five years ago, I didn't necessarily know what I was going to be doing that I'm, what I'm doing now. Um, but I have a much clearer sense of, I think what I'm uniquely good at doing. Um, and so now it's just being open to the various venues where I can lever that, you know, deploy that skill set in a way that adds value. So yeah, I think I feel like the first the first window of your career is so much about getting clarity on who you are, you know, and what you're good at. And then now it's more like I've got the flexibility to to see where that um, where that gets deployed really well. I think what's nice is is like kind of at this age range, like I'm not the youngest guy in the room. I've right. got a little bit of you know enough gray hair that's kind of coming in that like. Most of the rooms that I'm in, people kind of assume that I'm supposed to be there, even if I'm even if I am the youngest person there. Um, that's nice because then it's more like, all right, let's focus on the work. Um, right. and I don't necessarily have to prove yourself, yeah, validate my presence. Um, yeah, no, exactly. It's uh, so yeah, I, I think it's it's an exciting time. I mean, I think there's even like at a word of volatile period in the market and certainly with, with everything that's happened the last couple of years, like, but volatility creates opportunity because it mm-hmm. creates the chance to relook at how, at the underlying assumptions of why something has always been done the way that it's been done and then to env- envision something different. Um, so I think it's, I think that's really exciting. I think, you know, whether it's meeting other entrepreneurs or kind of coming up with new ideas of my own, like, I think it's more just making sure that um, I've got enough bandwidth to not, to not get so busy that I can't chase, you know, something, sometimes there's every now and then when you chase a rabbit, you catch it. Right. And I think it's, you want to like, make sure that you've got enough time to chase a few rabbits, um, too many rabbits. And like you, you don't have an impact cause you're too spread too thin. Um, but a few, I think gives you the, the variability and the variety to continue to be good at what you're doing, but then also like it may identify other things that you can do as well. Um, Thought, thought it was interesting what you said about the you know it the last couple of years really exposed some aspects of why we do things that we do and and it exposes opportunity it also that's because it exposes inefficiencies I mean think about how many face to face meetings we have in our day to day lives pre twenty twenty that are completely unnecessary to be face to face it's just absolutely yeah <laughs> so we fast forward it uh, <clears throat> we fast forward it you know, probably a decade and a year. And, and there's, there's this lightning in a bottle in that scenario. And yes, it's COVID, the entire experience was very tragic, traumatic, and 
you know, I would, I will, I will say we're probably <clears throat> going to be paying the consequences of what happened during that time period and what is still happening for a long time to come. But on the flip side of that, it did create a lot of efficiencies to where, Hey, maybe you don't have to have an hour and a half commute there and back every day. And now you have three hours of your day back to be a better, better, <clears throat> excuse me, better father, better mother, child, whatever spouse doesn't matter. Yep. Um, yeah. I think that's, that's incredibly impactful. Yes, absolutely. And I don't know about your, your, your day to day, but I've gotten to the point now where it's like, if I have to be in a meeting where someone is going to give me an update, it's like, that is the most inefficient use of my time. Like write it in a, you know, write it out, send me, you know, write it in a document or pre-record it like, right. so that I can watch it on my asynchronously on my own and at two X the speed, like, right. you know, I, like I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and books and everything else. And, and, you know, um, the ability to listen to something like the brain can process information faster than most people talks. Right. Most people speak. And so like, listen to something at one and a half or two X speed, like once you kind of get used to that cadence. And so when you sit on an hour and a half long call where everyone just like is reading their slides or, you know, telling you, telling you things, well, like what, what, what really matters when you get people together? It's the alchemy that that when you can, when you can take a group of people and you can come up with ideas and you can respond in real time, like, that's the work that's really valuable in person. Like, you know, giving someone just the like, here's what happened in the last quarter and here's what we're going to do next quarter. Like, don't waste, don't waste my time. Like, you know, that can be done more efficiently. Um, and then, and then, yeah. And then that allows greater things to be done. So I, yeah, hundred yeah. percent agree. Like most of our work lives are not as efficient as they could be. And I think, I think that's good that COVID has kind of shown that there's other ways to structure workflow. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, coming up on time here, so I want to make sure I ask the question I always ask. So if we go back to 18-year-old David, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, yeah. excited, you know, the world is your oyster. If there's one thing you could tell yourself knowing all that you know and knowing all that you know about yourself at this stage of your life, one thing you could tell 18-year-old you, what would that be? Um. The thing that comes immediately to mind is, is that things take longer than you think mm. that, um, yeah, I, I, I look at what I, where I am right now and what I'm doing, which I love. And, um, but to be good at what I'm doing right now, there were some career stops along the way where for four, for four or five years, you know, I was learning a skill set, learning how to do something that I didn't really love every day. Like, right. I didn't, it was enough that like, I, I didn't hate the job, but it was clearly like, this. it was like, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, and sometimes like we have to sit in, you know, certain greenhouses or like if you're a plant, you've got to be potted in certain soil for a period of time. Right. So that like when you get to the right place, like you're ready, you are ready to grow, you are ready to, to be there. I think the 18 year old was more like it's the tension between like being aggressive and like wanting to, to push and change and grow, but then also being patient with like the things that take longer. And I am not, that's a balance that I'm still not, I still don't have figured out, but I do know that my 18 year old self was so aggressive um, and impatient um, that I think, yeah, if I could have given myself the gift of a little bit of perspective on that, um, I think I probably would have been ha happier along the way of just saying like, you know what, like, it's okay that this is not happening as fast as you, you would like, as long as you still feel like you're learning. Now, if it's slow and you're not learning, then, then maybe that's a the sign that it's time for a change. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a paradox. Maybe I feel so incredibly seen as you're describing that. I just, <laughs> like you're, I feel like you're talking about myself. Um, I appreciate you coming on, dude. This is awesome. How uh, how can folks get a hold of you? Uh, yeah, so um, if you if you my, my website is familycapitalstrategy.com, um, and that'll take you to I I I write pretty regularly on that. Um, I, I'm on kind of the usual Twitter and LinkedIn. Um, You've got a new periodically, um, but uh, but yeah, that's probably the easiest place to start. And emails there, and you know, would love to if folks have questions or want to chat, like happy please feel free to reach out or, or find me on the uh, on the socials so cool and i'll have all the socials and stuff like that in the uh, episode description um 
I appreciate you coming on. This was awesome. I think this was a Thanks. little it was a little bit of a different conversation than we've had recently. Um, feel like we we touched on some interesting topics. Um, any parting words? No, I think you know. I, I, I maybe, and it seems to be a theme of the conversation, which is like, you know, don't get so head down that you that you miss the opportunity in front of you. And I might add to that, like, read good books. Read like, good books. Pick a cup. Yeah, pick a couple of books. You know, uh, readers or leaders or readers is kind of the old refrain. Like, pick a couple of books, and I think at the very least that may open your eyes and give you some perspective on some things, and then and then be open to to what that might lead to. Hmm. Leaders are readers, guys. Yes, no, I one hundred percent agree. I've, I've, I've this past year, I purposefully took a step back, but pretty much all the years before that, I was probably in the same category as you from a number of books read in a year. And it, it's true. That's where a lot of the good ideas and a lot of the thoughts and a lot of the, you know, the, 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 the development and expression of ideas and coming to grips with what you actually believe and what you think is possible. Um, it's a good exercise for your brain. Yeah. There's that, you know, there's that old joke about the, the two guys running from a bear that like, it's, you know, the one guy saying like, I've got to outrun this bear. And the other guy saying, no, I just have to outrun you. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I think like, I think that we talked about this earlier too, but it's like, you know, how few people are, are trying to, to, to reach out thoughtfully to, to people who've been successful and to learn and to grow and everything else. And like, it, it doesn't, it takes a modest amount of effort to, to outperform your competition. Um, because in some cases your competition is just not even trying. Right. Um, right. So right. It, That's you, so true. Yeah, you, you don't have to be Tim Ferriss. Like you don't have to be somebody who's like atypically either hyper intentional or like abnormal in the amount of bandwidth or energy they have. Right. Um, like you just have to be like slightly but more than average and, and your average, you know, that base rate is actually pretty low. Yeah. You don't have to outrun the bear, just outrun the other person. Um, for everybody listening, manhoodpod.com, info at manhoodpod.com. If you got questions, uh, people you want me to interview, constructive criticism, keyword constructive, don't just complain. You got to offer a solution. And outside of that, we will talk to you guys soon.